that you're born an Italian If you want your life to be great See that you're born an Italiano And your life will be great From the moment you're a small bambino You eat pizza, you drink vino Then they make you roly-poly You get stuffed with ravioli If your mama's a paisano You will have the world on a plate So see that you're born an Italiano And your life will be great Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Italian American Podcast. I am your moderator, John Viola, and flying solo today. First and foremost, want to wish everybody out there a very happy and blessed Father's Day. Buona festa della papa. And I am actually recording this episode on June 21st, Father's Day, and very excited to share with you a special guest that I get to have this evening. Uh, he is like me, an Italian American from the Borough of Kings, Brooklyn, New York. Came from a hardworking family and worked his way up to attend the United States Military Academy at West Point. From there, served in the U.S. Army, went on to a very successful career as a commodities trader and eventually creator of his own clearinghouse on the New York Mercantile Exchange. Went on to serve as the chairman of that exchange during the trying days of September 11th. Later built the electronic trading company Virtu Financial. Beyond his accomplishments in the world of finance, he is also a renowned sportsman. In the sport of thoroughbred horse racing, he has wins in the Kentucky Derby and the Breeders' Cup Championship, and is also the owner of the National Hockey League's Florida Panthers. He has continued to serve his first love of the United States military as one of the co-founders of the Center for Combating Terrorism at West Point, built in the wake of 9-11, and was even nominated to serve as the United States Secretary of the Army. He's a great lover of life and adventure. He's done everything from climbing Mount Kilimanjaro to riding rodeo. And I know a great deal about today's guest and have gotten to watch and accompany him on many of these adventures because, above all, he is an amazing dad. So if you haven't figured it out already, today I have the distinct honor of introducing everybody out there in podcast land to my dad, Vinny Viola. So, Pop, welcome to the Italian American Podcast. I'm very honored to be here, John. Thank you. It's kind of interesting for me to do this. I'm uh, going to try to be extra cautious with how I frame this interview because uh, obviously I'm super proud of your accomplishments, but I want to make sure that I remember to treat you like an interviewee and not uh, just my dad and kind of talk inside baseball. Well, first, uh, I'm very humbled that you consider my my life experience worthy of your respect, but I don't think you have to worry about cautiousness. That's just not one of the components of your makeup. Yeah, I guess that's true. So, uh, I'm going to do my best to manage this interview as normally as possible. But like I said, you've got an amazing list of accomplishments, and I don't want to make this about bragging about my dad. I really want to talk about the things that I think are most important to both of us, which are our Italian-American heritage and, most important of all, family. So let's start by talking a little bit about family and neighborhood because your neighborhood in Brooklyn, our neighborhood, I know is incredibly fundamental to who you are as a person and your life story. You've often described it to me as growing up in an Italian-American village. Why don't you tell everybody what you mean by that? Yeah, I would, I would say that my neighborhood was extremely unique and had a very powerful impact on the people that grew up in this particular neighborhood. But also very typical in that it was a post-World War II 
blue-collar neighborhood, and it was the victim, I think, of the natural progression post-World War II from the inner city to the suburbs. On the main street of my particular section of the neighborhood, which was, I think, Graham Avenue, you could hear the Italian language is spoken just as easily as you could English. And really the calendar was defined by school and the year was defined by religious feasts. Fascinating place, fascinating time. Let's talk a little bit about the immigrant experience because I think it's so definitional when your family came here, when our family came here. You've got multiple different versions of that in our family line. Your family's been, in some cases, in the neighborhood since 1900. Your father immigrated as a young child from Italy. What was that like? What did that mean for you, and how did that define you? So the unique thing about my family was that my mother's father sponsored my father's father for his uh, initial entry into America, the neighborhood, a place to live. My grandfather, Vincent, who I'm named after, came around 1920. My dad was born in Italy after he had left. And then my grandmother took my dad and his brother Ernest and his brother Antonio to America in, I think, 1923, the Mm -hmm. summer of 1923. And just a little geographical history of the family my father's father came from Litronico, which is Basilicata, the region of Basilicata. Uh, my mother's father came from Sanza. These are small towns in the central mountainous regions of Italy, as you know, south and east of Naples. So my father's father came to America after being in the Italian army for about parts or all of 12 years. My mother's father, Frank, had been here from around the turn of the century, 1898 or 1899. You probably know these facts Mm -hmm. better than me. And he took on a job in the sanitation department, which was very prestigious back then for Italian-Americans. He was very industrious. And by 1903... He had purchased a six-family home, uh, in fact, the house that you were born into. And from that house, from that six-family house, really was the sort of social and cultural definition and formation of my life because my grandfather worked very hard as a sanitation man. And the anecdote, as my dad tells it, fast forward to 19... 75 or 6 when my mother's remaining two sisters and brother decided to sell the house to her at a fantastically a gracious discounted family fam- price family price uh my dad had to go to the Bushwick Savings Bank the local bank to clear title by paying off the mortgage and the the banker there who knew the family for years basically when my dad went to pay the mortgage off said Thank God this is the longest standing mortgage we have on the books because, you know, it was left by my grandfather. My my grandmother passed away pretty young. So my mother's father was the patron of my father's father. My mother and dad 
grew up most of their youth in the same house. My mother was the youngest of 10 children, nine to survive. My father was the third oldest of 10 children, and they knew each other their whole lives. So them getting married was almost like uh, putting on the most comfortable pair of socks you have to stay at home and watch television. It's that warmth and coziness was at the core of their relationship. I think it's safe to say that that warmth and coziness was really rooted in the house. Let's talk a little bit about the house. Yeah, yeah, amazing house. Because I think the neighborhood that you grew up in, particularly while you were growing up, was different than other Brooklyn Italian neighborhoods in that it wasn't necessarily all residential. Yeah. There was a considerable amount of light industry, factories, lots, less retail. Most of the houses were clapboard, wood, tenements. Even for Italian-American standards, you're talking about a really poor neighborhood. Yeah. But no matter the social conditions, you have this house filled with family and filled with love. I think when I did research into the 1930 census, there was like 78 members of our family living in those six tiny apartments. Yeah. So when you grew up, you got to grow up in the same house your mother grew up in, your father grew up in. And eventually when you and mom got married, I was born there. And over that 80-year arc, when your grandfather buys that house in 1903 and I'm born in 1983, you have hundreds and hundreds of family members from multiple branches of the family who at some point in their life have called this place home. So tell us a little bit about growing up in a poor neighborhood and really one of the poorer families, but having this stability, uncles and aunts and cousins and family around in this safe house. Well, I remember the night that my mom shared the great news for us that my Aunt Josie, her sister, older sister, was moving to Maspeth, Queens, which was a typical migratory path for Italians that grew up in this sort of northern corner of Brooklyn. And we were going to take her apartment because we lived in, let's just say, a less desirable apartment in the neighborhood. And we were always over my Aunt Josie's house. And the house was just, it defined your life. Just start with the geography of the house, the layout. Across the hall was my Uncle Nicky. Upstairs, on top of us, as we'd like to say, was my Aunt Sarah and Uncle Frank. On the second floor was my Aunt Mary and Uncle Joe. And above my Aunt Mary and Uncle Joe were my Aunt Jenny and Uncle Sam. And across them was my Aunt Rosie and my Uncle John. And my mother was very strict on us. So when I came home from grammar school, I had to make sure that every one of my aunts... The, the needs of their daily needs for milk, right? The old sort of milk and bread, milk and bread and whatever they were cooking that night. So I got really good at memorizing stuff <laughs> outside of school because I had to get all of their orders right. And I'd go to the store for usually three people, I'd say on a busy day, it was four or five <laughs> relatives. I mean, every day I, I went to the store for my mom right after school. That was the first thing I did. And the house basically commanded rituals because my mother was the youngest, so her oldest sibling was 24 years older than her. It's like your grandparents, really. And so, yeah, my Aunt Rosie was really my grandparent because my mother's mother passed away when she was, I think, 11 years old. So the house was, um, you were watched by six set of eyes (laughs) every day, you know, and with so much love in that house. And the cacophonous sort of sound of one aunt yelling down to the other, to the other uncle, and one aunt and uncle had a routine 
like they would always argue like on payday <laughs> you know you knew like when my uncle came home on payday somewhere in in between five and eight o'clock you'd hear the bellows of a the same argument over and over again i i forget what it was i mean everybody's door was almost always open and the crazy thing about it was everybody had a phone but none of my aunts would use the phone to call each other. I don't know if they counted the calls in those days. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, they could have been But they'd come out of the house and just bellow my mother's name. My mother was the youngest. And she kind of was, let's just say, beckoned the most. And, you know, every holiday, every Sunday, that house, you talk about 78 people. I bet you that sun- house on a typical Sunday had to have 40, 50 people when I was growing up. Because yeah. everybody would come back to it. You know, the idea of being brought up in a house with your extended Italian family is kind of a recurring theme on the show. And we always talk about how much you learn through osmosis from living amongst your family with aunts and uncles and cousins and multiple generations and grandparents. So like the idea that you learn how to rear children just by being around the younger generations of the family and helping out. You learn business by interacting around the financial survival of your family what is it that you think you learned living in this house with so many generations? What, well, what, what the did you first, take? Thing, first thing I learned was absolute, unconditional, ego-multiplying love. You know, my aunts made me feel like I was the smartest, strongest, you know, Guanda Zibel. It was like, you know, I, I, and, and they all did that. Yeah. You know, so that's sort of very supportive, even though the neighborhood, it was in many ways for a young child brutal. But yeah. We could talk about that in the different contexts and different stories. But I want to talk about the industriousness of these people and the tedious dedication to toil. My dad used to always say, you'll never be the smartest, but you were bred to work. Yeah. And hard work will eventually catch up to brains. Yeah. And my Uncle Sam was a pigeon mumbler and he was a champion pigeon mumbler and to raise pigeons to race in long distance races is no different than breeding and training the most elite animal athletes so let me just take a second to explain to the audience what pigeon mumbling really is because it was a very popular sport throughout the united states up until probably the 60s and 70s where homing pigeons like we would use in wartime for messaging were actually trained by individual families or clubs to race all over the country and you would take the pigeons to the starting point and say Boston and they'd all be tagged on their ankles with your individual tag, a bracelet, and then they would be released and they would have to seek out the homing beacon signal, whatever you did, training them with the flag in the sky or a certain whistle, whatever it was. And they would come back to wherever the end of the race was and the timing would be reported. Synchronous timing with a, with, with a, with a, um, I can't remember the word, but a uh, registered machine, timing yes. machine. Yes, exactly. Like the like the chess machines. Bonded, yeah. yeah, chess machine. Yeah. And this was a sport that was significantly popular in the 10s, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s even. Yeah. I mean, really, I don't think people realize how broad the appeal was of the sport. And in your family, led by Uncle Sam, the kind of patriarch of the family, yep. they were champion mumblers. They were champion mumblers. And... The amazing thing about it was they did everything. They had a separate breeding shed in the yard. And I remember my uncle and his sons and my Aunt Rosie's 
sons also, I believe, participating in the pigeon training because every day you had to go out, get up with your, you know, get up there with your bamboo rod with your flag on the end of it and unique whistle that your flocks would know. And I'll never forget, I had to be maybe six or seven years old, eight years old maybe, and I asked my dad to take me up on the roof. And that was, that was like a rite of passage. So my, my family was very hierarchical, and my father asked my Uncle Sam for permission. And when I got up there, I just couldn't believe what I saw. This coop, it was like a racing coop, so you saw sections of it, very well designed. And the whistle, my uncle's whistle was magical. It was melodic to me. And when I got up to the roof, I realized that there were like eight or nine other flocks going around, you know, within a six, eight, ten block area, it seemed to me. It seemed like the the sky was filled with pigeons. And uh, my uncle was very quiet. And he took me in the coop. It's really actually, it's quite emotional. And uh, the birds just came back. And, you know, he kind of pushed them and ushered them into their stalls. Some of the most beautiful birds till today. I mean, I just remember these pigeons. And, and uh, for some reason, you have to remember now, I was the youngest of all my cousins. So I have cousins that when I was born were... You're 40 years old cousins that were older than your mother yeah many cousins that were and, and they all were aunts and uncles to yeah. me right so um you know we knew that the few cousins and first cousins once removed we kind of knew that we were not going to do that it was almost unspoken i mm-hmm. I, I you felt we were not required to do that because that maybe was not what people who had assimilated to the American way of life were doing. Were doing. Yeah. And as I got older and I realized the amount of, of just toil, effort, discipline that went into that, I started to really understand uh, the excellence around that. Right. There's no less excellence required of that task than any other task that's defined by championships. Yeah, that's very true. Right. And we weren't introduced to it. Yeah. And I I, I always found that very fascinating. You know, you grew up in an interesting time, right? Post-war Brooklyn, born in the mid 50s. I mean, grandma was born here. Grandpa came here as a young man and fought in Italy for the U.S. Army during the Second World War. Both of them spoke Italian, probably Neapolitan, really, in the house. You hear this language from a whole cadre of aunts and uncles and cousins. But by the time you came along, again, that was not required of you. It was more of the generation of post-war, don't speak Italian, speak English, look outward as opposed to looking inward, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So my mom and dad spoke Italian a lot to each other. My mom and dad had a ritual that they kept their whole lives. They would have breakfast time, just them together. You know, when we were kids, we would have breakfast before school. But they always would get up earlier and have, like, their breakfast. I remember that very distinctly. Let me add so people understand the building you grew up in, these railroad apartments. 11 feet wide apartments by 45 feet long. 
And really no doors separating the rooms. No doors, faux walls. Like when yeah. I say faux walls, you, you might have... Half walls. Yeah, half an walls. An entryway. But, I mean, you were... Yeah. Right. You were you had a bed. Aunt Lou was on a fold out. Grandma and Grandpa had a room. But I mean, everything yeah. happened together. So yes. These conversations were private at the kitchen table, but you were feet away. In yeah. The- there were no sinks in the bathrooms. Yeah. It was just a a bathtub. Yeah. Uh, we actually had a shower, but most a bunch of my friends would have to have sort of a jerry rigged shower head wow. right from the faucet of the bathtub, and you basically did a lot of your washing in the kitchen sink. Yeah. So these conversations they were having, you're not far away from. Oh, you're you're, you're with you're within within earshot, but yeah. they're speaking in Italian, and it's funny because you talk about we you and I you you always teach me about blood memory. You know, as you got older, you could almost know what they were saying by the tonality and if they were laughing, if they were you know, yeah. it, it's just fascinating. But none of your friends' parents felt the obligation to teach them Italian, or it was sort of. No, it was quite the opposite. Yeah. It was quite the opposite. And I'll, I'll put it in perspective. For some reason, in the mid-60s, there was a um, a large immigration to my neighborhood of people from Italy. Sure. Yeah. Probably a false memory, but for some reason, it was told to me when I was young that there was an earthquake in Italy. You would probably know the historical, historical and economic, socioeconomic context better than I would. But we had a, a huge influx of Italian families to the neighborhood. And I have to tell you, they were put through a uh, an immigrant experience. In yeah. other words, they they were marginalized. They were marginalized. They were treated hard. Yeah. Now that's when my Italianness kicked in, because my dad always held it sacred that he was born in Italy. Yeah. And he was a. a I don't use the word leader in the neighborhood because Italians don't have leaders. (laughs) That's the truth. He was a sort of respected guy in the neighborhood, and he went out of his way to reach out to this immigrant wave. Yeah. And he was very gracious to them, supported them in many ways. And I can remember many Saturday mornings going with my dad as these people were starting to get on their feet and him going visiting one or two or three and talking to him in Italian. He spoke Italian beautifully, and they felt safe with him. I knew that. And that's just a fascinating memory. But they were marginalized. Yeah. And it wasn't until maybe we were like 14 or 15 where we would start, quote, unquote, hanging out with these kids that had been in the neighborhood for six or seven years already. Yeah. We kind of excluded them from our play right because they didn't know american culture so you talk about looking out absolutely the mandate was you go to school you do better than us and you move out of the neighborhood let's talk about that a little bit because it's safe to say you grew up in a family that came from economic hardship and you were very lucky you were able to combine your talents and hard work and a focus on education, yep. which, frankly, a lot of families in our community did not have, statistically speaking, in the late 60s and 70s, because we have this myth of education and its primacy. But, frankly, there was actually less focus on education in the 60s and 70s in Italian families than we'd like to think if you look at the statistics. But you were able to go to Brooklyn Tech, which was a great public school, and then from there able to find the United States Military Academy at West Point, which is another public institution with public funding. uh, So you're able to get a top-notch education 
but you're actually paid right. as a soldier because you commit to five right. years afterwards to serve in the United States Army. Talk a little bit about going to this institution, this really absolutely singular institution in the U.S., where the likes of Patton and MacArthur and Grant and Eisenhower, presidents and generals and diplomats, leaders in times of war and peace, have all come out of this place. And here's this skinny kid at 17 years old from an Italian-American neighborhood in Brooklyn, which was very much a village. You kind of have to have your own immigrant experience there, I would imagine. Yeah, I, I never really thought about it because West Point is so overwhelming and it was my singular goal from when my dad took me to the academy in early July in what I think is either 1964 or 65. And my dad had this charisma and all I could remember was getting up real early. He said, come on, uh, we're going to go. My dad, I don't really never called me by my name. <laughs> he just said, come, come on, we're going to see Uncle Tony, and then I'm taking you to West Point. We, you have to remember the, the defining experience of my dad's life was his service in World War II in the Army. And the only thing I could connect is that my dad kept in touch with some of the people he served with. As you know, we got letters from two or three or four members of his platoon uh, when he passed away. I didn't know that, actually. Yeah, yeah. I would love to see that. That's yeah, my I, Uncle no Fra- I think Uncle Frankie has them. Yeah. Wow. Uh, and I guess he knew somebody at West Point. My dad knew somebody everywhere. Yes. Uh, I, I just, I don't know. I <laughs> That's just, true. I, I can't, just, you know, there were no boundaries. Or I know a guy would be the Italian-American version of LinkedIn. That would be our website. Yeah, I know, I know a, a guy. guy. Yeah, yeah. I know yeah. a guy. I have a friend. I have a friend. Friend.com. Yeah. Or my friend. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. We're going to go see my friend. Yeah. That's right. And, uh, to make a very long story short, you know, he made sure, you know, my hair was combed that morning. And I know my dad did not know this because if he did, he pulled the biggest uh, whatever on me in my life. <laughs> but it was the day of reception for that class entering. Wow. So here I am holding my dad's hand or standing beside him with a friend of his, I vaguely remember, looking at what looked to me like statuesque young men in white t-shirts, gray shorts, black shoes, and knee-high silk black socks. And the ones that had glasses looked like they all came out of the uh, Kingston 3-0, like, like, you know, something that had the 50s. Military surplus glasses. Yeah, yeah, these black. Like Buddy Holly glasses. Yeah, Buddy Holly glasses. And the cadets in charge of them were just statuesque in their dress uniforms. And my dad had just always told me stories from when I was a kid about the Army and military history. I guess sort of like, you know, um, maybe I did to you guys. I don't know. And that's a transcendent event going on. These young men, at the time was only men, getting brought into an immersive experience defined by duty, honor, and country. And I could tell just by how ramrod straight they were all standing that they were different. And I, I, we couldn't have been there more than 10, 20 minutes, right? How long is an eight-year-old kid going to... And my dad hmm. maybe chatted with his friend. We didn't take a tour or, or anything like that. And um, my dad never 
talked about West Point as a, a, a hallowed place or someplace. Never, my dad was not a, a guy who pushed you. Yeah, he kind of really more wanted to just hang out with you. <laughs> yeah, right. He was he was really my best friend from when I was sort of old enough to where he said, "Okay, this is how you behave, and this is the code you're going to follow." I was maybe thirteen or fourteen years old, you know. So the academy defines everything I attempt to be every day of my life. But to my question about ethnicity, did you feel an outsiderness, or is West Point the kind of place that kind of defies ethnicity? It, it, kind of, well, you know, it, it was. It I was. I feel like a place like that. It, it doesn't matter what your ethnicity is. No, it, it really. That's the amazing thing about the place. It just you know you have to do your duty. It, yeah, everybody wears the same thing every day. Everybody does the same thing every day. It's so overwhelming that I think you you just sort of leave everything behind. Yeah. Like my friend said, the first time they got to see me, they were like uncomfortable. You know, they they they, they just <laughs> they, you, know, you were a different person. They were taken back. Yeah. But you know, I think of the guys that I've gotten to meet from your experience at West Point and some of the ones that you were really close to and you have a lot of Italian friends from your time at West Point, right? Yes. Yes. And uh, and a lot of And a lot of non Italian yeah, friends. Yeah. Was there a sense of looking for the familiar? That's interesting you say that. The place was so I, I um I I'm gonna use the word transcendent? No. 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 It wasn't like we're Italians, we're gonna hang out together. It, you probably maybe you know, connect a little familiarity, but we never thought of it in terms of our Italianness. Right. Our soldierly dedication came first. Yeah. To everything. It it hits you somewhere that this is a profession. Yeah. This is a vocational profession. Yeah. If you don't work at this, you're gonna fail your men when the test is brought to you. Let's talk about that idea of vocation, because I know for your entire childhood, you wanted to be a soldier. That was your driving desire. And after your five years were up, your dad, my grandfather, was suffering from the earliest stage, the early stages of heart disease, which would eventually take his life. One of the first or second of the 13 heart attacks that he would suffer. And you made the decision to leave the military and come home and essentially take care of your family. What goes through your mind there? How, how does the struggle between duty and vocation and the Italian concept of family first play out for you? What makes you make that choice? Uh, for me, I think it was because I was the oldest of the three siblings, so I never thought of anything but making sure I could help my parents. Yeah. You know, my dad was a a guy who came from World War II, and he would tell you many times, you know, he, he shouldn't have survived it on multiple occasions. Mm-hmm. So he came back with a little bit of a bon vivant sort of approach to life, <laughs> you know. And, you know, he was a typical, hardworking guy, but he wasn't a guy that was defined by aspiration. Yeah. All he wanted was his family around him and, quite frankly, to have a good time. Yeah. 
you know, so it was you work hard during the week, you go to the racetrack on weekends, and you always put your family first. So if, when your kid is, I don't know how old I was when he grabbed me because I was always with my dad. And here I am one day in, at Aqueduct, and I'm, uh, I, I don't know how old I was <laughs> because they tell me now that you weren't allowed in tracks in the 60s until a certain <laughs> age. I know I was there because I distinctly remember how the guys would reserve their seats because they take the daily newspaper and they'd fold it into eighths. Mm-hmm. So you have maybe a two-inch strip of thick paper. And they would weave that paper wow. through the s- slots between the wood of the seats and the grandstand. And that's how you knew somebody was sitting there. And no one took that seat. Once that newspaper was weaved inside between the, those slats of wood, and I remember that distinctly. And my dad bet the horses, as you know, grandpa bet the horses every day of his life, yeah. right? You know, And I remember so, so many weekends at the racetrack with my dad. Well, it's clear that you got your love of the game from grandpa and probably learned a lot about handicapping and the movement of numbers. Uh, when you do come home, obviously you're not going to become a professional handicapper. Right. You end up at the New York Mercantile Exchange trading commodities. Do you think there's a part of that skill with numbers that maybe you picked up at the track that informed your decision to go down to the exchange? No, not at all. No, no similarities. No, huh? no, not at all. I, I actually sort of realized in retrospect that because my dad was a good gambler, so he taught me a lot of what I understand to be now risk management. Yeah. Like my dad was cold on the odds and change of odds in a race. He just, he looked at, we used to call it look at the board and he could tell you the movement in odds and various horses and kind of almost feel like where the flow of money was going. Well, that's kind of right at the end of the day, what you do when you trade. Yeah. Because capital Capital, but I didn't, you didn't connect those. That, no, though. not at all. The, no. the the reason I wound up with Wall Street is because the guys that I had grew up with and the pool room that I hung out at, that my mother would come drag me out of, and quite <laughs> frankly, sometimes when I saw my mom and she had a broomstick in her hand, I knew I knew I was going to get <laughs> taken out of the pool room and, and embarrassed at the same time. But Uncle Donnie, right? You know, he he was the first really successful trader down on the exchange. It's a friend you grew up with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Older than me. Always like an older brother than me. He was a great athlete. And uh, I loved sports. I was an average athlete, but he was a great athlete and uh, just a great guy. And he was very well respected in the neighborhood. And actually his brother Danny got adopted down to the floor. The The sociology of the trading floors in those days was fascinating because in the early 60s, late 50s, I think there was a increase of Italian-Americans who would work on the trading floors as like the old ma- the quintessential mailroom positions. Okay. So somewhere in the early 60s, that started to happen in the small commodities exchanges that existed in New York, and there were many. And instead of a career as a soldier, you ended up on the New York Mercantile Exchange. Yeah. I mean, I never really thought I was getting out of the Army. Yeah. So I didn't really know how to look for a job and sent out resumes, and I got two or three offers. Uh, One was in Indiana. One was in Chicago. (laughs) I can't remember the engineering companies. Uh, I think Pfizer 
offered me a job or an interview. And I couldn't work outside of New York because I, by the time I got out of the Army, Grandma and Grandpa were, were my dependents. Right. And obviously, I wasn't going to leave them anyway. You I mean, came I, home I was, for them. I, I was living in the house with yeah. them. Yeah, I came home for them. And one night, we were hanging out in a bar, the local bar, and Danny looked at me and said, what are you doing sending resumes? You were always fantastic in math. He's like, come down to the exchange. I, I said, what is that? What do you do? And the rest is history. You know, it's interesting you say, what do you do? Because it sort of brings us back to the Italianness of the topic because you, you, you go down, you build a successful career down there. Eventually, you and mom made the decision to move to the suburbs. And then we followed your sister, my Aunt Lucille, yep. out to a suburb in New Jersey. And then shortly thereafter, Grandma and Grandpa came, yep. your brother came, your cousins came. Everybody sort of followed yep. the same path out. We, we traveled as a tribe. We're kind of uh, flockish. Yeah, we're flockish. We're clannish, yeah. But I remember growing up, and we didn't have any other Italians in the area. You know, I didn't know what the word mafia meant. And I remember kids at school would ask me what you did. And, you know, I had as a eight, nine-year-old described commodities trading. It, it couldn't do it. So I said, you know, my dad gets up in the morning and puts on a suit and he goes into <laughs> New York. And I remember a kid asking me in like third grade, like, is your dad in the mafia? And I didn't know what he meant, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I had no idea. Yeah. Those kind of stereotypes. As you grew your success, did you ever encounter that kind of stuff? Well, I mean, you know, the answer is I, I didn't look for it. Yeah. I was so oblivious to stereotypes. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does, of course. Yeah. Well, certain yeah. people are, yeah. Yeah, and so I, I, I'm the kind of guy that thinks that, you know, I'm always going to be straightforward, forthright, and, you know, follow me, right? I'm an infantryman at heart. Yeah. Uh, but I'm sure that uh, along the way I had to be viewed by the people on Wall Street, right? Because I remember one time early on I was being interviewed for, because I, I got elected to the Board of Governors in 1987. I was all, I was the youngest uh second youngest guy ever to get elected to the Board of Governors of the New York Mercantile Exchange. And when I got on the board, there was actually two other Italian-Americans on it. But I remember the marketing people, the exchange, saying, uh, how do you want your name in the board records? I said, Vinny. Vinny, you know, Vinny, Vinny. <laughs> They're like, well, we really can't call you Vinny. <laughs> What's your real name? I said, my real name's Vincenzo, but my mother was, you know, she kind of was a visionary, and she said, put on the, uh, both the baptismal certificate and, and the birth certificate, Vincent. So I said, no, I want to be called Vinny. That's my name. Everybody calls me Vinny, and I like that name. I don't know why I just really like my name. Uh, so I'm sure I was an acquired taste for many. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, you don't realize how typical you are. Yeah. I, I consider myself to be a very typical guy who was extremely lucky and blessed by the friends I have and the family I had. Very, very, very blessed. And my mother's faith really defined my unbridled enthusiasm, my unbridled belief that everything was good. Yeah. Right? Well, I mean, I might be biased. I don't know if you're necessarily typical. You're definitely not a typical dad. But uh, 
I do think the thing that I learned from you was an atypical commitment to doing the hard work and learning everything from the ground up. Like you always told me, if you want to own a restaurant, first learn to wash dishes. Again, my father's code. You'll never be the smartest. You have to be the hardest worker. I think when I was growing up, the thing I was most proud of as your son was that people would say that when you were trading in in the pit, (laughs) they said that you would go from bell to bell in the same spot, trading all day, no break, no lunch, no water, no bathroom. So when you got up, I can actually picture like those big 80s carpets in the old trading pits. When you left, there were two footprints in the carpets. And I get that that's real. And I remember when I was a kid, I was watching a documentary on the Italian-American experience, and Tommy Lasorda was describing his dad coming home from the coal mines in Pennsylvania. Yeah. And his dad would be so overworked from hours and hours on end in the coal mines, freezing cold. And his dad would ask him to rub his feet to warm them up. Yeah. And there were some days you'd come home standing on your feet from opening bell to closing bell, and then going and running a whole company, a whole second job afterwards. And you'd come home and say, Johnny, rub my feet. Yeah. And I remember when I watched that, I felt like I was part of something, like a line, a father to son. Yeah, you are. Cultural you are. connectivity. There was something very yeah, Italian are. about that, that respect, that admiration for your dad. Yeah. And well, thank when I got you. to meet him, I remember saying that to Tommy the first time that I met him and how yeah. much it meant to me to hear him say it. Yeah. And I, I want to talk about that because you, you, know, you built this career – you decided at some point to get active in the Italian-American community. You, yes. You became active with the National Italian-American Foundation. Yes. Um, I, I always say, after a friend of ours, a mutual friend who worked with you for years, Diana Famia, brought me down as her date when I was like 16 or whatever. Yes. And um, First of all, you've got a lot of great Italian-American mentors yes. that you've met yes. throughout the years. I have. I have. Well, oh, gosh. I mean, Donnie Vassallo made me who I was as a trader. He was he, he was really an older brother, a uh, mentor, real mentor. And till today, you know, he's my brother. He's one of the finest human beings that I've been blessed to meet anywhere. Uh, and Dick Grasso, who I called till today older brother, really was the guy who really sort of rounded me out as a leader, you know, in the context of the financial industry. And for our audience, I'm sure the name is really familiar, but for those who are unaware, Dick Russell was the chairman and CEO of the New York Stock Exchange. Yeah, at the height of the exchange's dominance. Yeah. You know, Dick is, you know, and uh, we could do a whole show on Dick Russell. I would love to interview him together. Yeah. Did you know him before September 11th? That always felt to me like that was when you guys really bonded. So I knew Dick from about 1996 or 97. I mean, he was, uh, for an Italian-American on Wall Street, Dick was... Uh, Lee Iacocca level. Yeah, he was, he was, he was the Oracle. Iconic, yeah. He was the Oracle, right? So I, I go to a black tie, and he's there, and I literally make sure, and I'm not that kind of guy. I make sure I say, Mr. Grasso, I'm honored to meet you. I'm so proud of who you are, you're a, um, a, a role model, or yeah. you know, I, and he just him and Lori couldn't have been nicer. And, and we, I walked him to their car, 
and we got to know each other. You know, we just clicked mm-hmm. like from that second on. Uh, always kept in touch. Period. Uh, I think I would make. I mean, I was very, very intimidated by this guy. Right. I mean, he was the chairman and CEO of the, the New York Stock Exchange, and and I learned now because you know now I called him older brother for a very long time. Um, he would purposely keep his office super hot. Dick, Dick does not like. He, he's definitely a Southern Italian. Even though, even though he's Genoese, I think he's got to have Southern, Southern Italian in him. Probably. So he, he'd invite you to breakfast, and like it was a sauna in there, and it was very formal. Anyway, um, on September 11th, you know we were overwhelmed because the exchange was on the western edge footprint of Ground Zero, and the only person I knew to call to really even think through it. Uh, was Dick Grasso. Did you ever think about the fact that when that happened, you were the chairman of the New York Mercantile Exchange, Dick was the chairman of the Stock Exchange, Sal Sodano, I think, yeah, was, was the chairman of the American, American Stock, Stock Exchange. Exchange, yeah. The mayor was Rudy Giuliani, the yeah. governor was George Pataki, who's half Italian. Pataki's yeah. not an Italian name, but he's yeah. half Italian. Uh, I mean, did there, do you have any sense of that? Uh, did I have any sense of that? Uh, no. No. I, I don't think, I think that's very typical of Italians, right? We love kind of who we are in the context of like, you know, the people we feel comfortable enough to just sort of enjoy that. Yeah. But I don't think we do so well around collectives. No, you know? we don't. We don't, I mean, we don't collectivize well. No. no. We, 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 you know, so it's like, uh, we, Listen, very proud of that fact. Sure, of course, now, right? Yeah. But it wasn't something like we would uh, banner or parade, yeah. right? Like we didn't walk in the Columbus Day Parade together, right? Yeah. Uh, the other person who really, really influenced me around demeanor and dignity and humility and uh, devoutness was Mario Cuomo. Yeah. Because... I had the privilege, and Vinny Teasy's another mentor and role model, and I, I want to talk a little bit about Vinny Teasy, Ken Langone, uh, Italian-Americans, right, in that category. Yeah. Role models, mentors, Italian-Americans. Um, I've always known a little bit about a lot of things. So technology committee. Vinny, you're the head of the technology committee. We're going we're to think about building an electronic exchange, okay? Uh, real estate. Vinny, you own a few buildings in Brooklyn. You're going to be the head of the real estate committee, co-head. And we're going to build a new headquarters for the exchange. And I got to meet Vinny Teasy. And Danny Rappaport really was the driving force, and I was sort of his assistant in that. But every step of the way, Danny was magnificently gracious and a sharing leader. He was was a great leader, Danny. So – I get to meet Mario Cuomo, and here I am. I, I'm doing a little bit of negotiating with Vinny Teasy, and a lot of negotiating with Vinny Teasy, as I remember. And then I get to meet the guy. And uh, I will never forget this as long as I live. He looked just like Michael Ernest, exactly. Yeah. I mean, like, it's crazy. And he was a handsome, uh, a, a handsome Italian-American male who was in great shape. He had hands like, you know... Baseball myths. Athletic hands. His countenance and demeanor was just magisterial. Yeah. And, you know, you know your dad. I was pushing the last 
you know, two, three, four yards of a deal that was really done. And he he tempered me without me knowing it. And I'll share this anecdote about Mario, if I could call him that, because I really, really love the guy. Uh, after that meeting, he always referred to me as you. Hey, you, <laughs> how you doing, you know? And I had uncles that would call me you, you know? <laughs> hey, you, you know, how yeah. you doing? And uh, I don't even know where to start with Kenny Langone because there's no... One of the founders of Home Depot. Yes. Yeah. An incredibly accomplished guy. Yeah, I mean, you know, but a, but a great American. I mean, yeah. his, his book on capitalism is, 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 is a tome, really. Uh, you know, these are, these are really... And there are, there are others, and I'm leaving them out. I, I, I'm, I mean, I have I to... get Jerry. Uh, Jerry Colangelo is my hero. Yeah. In the middle of the 60s, you know, I'm watching late 60s. I'm watching, uh, you know, on on WABC, they'd put a basketball game once a week. I, I loved basketball. And I'll left, you know, in the old sort of the way the graphics were in the old day, Jerry Colangelo, general manager of Chicago Bulls. I, I, that might be a false yeah, no, memory he was, now. Yeah. He was. Yeah. And my dad said, you know, that guy's Italian like us. And Jerry, obviously, another, right, you know, striking guy. Yeah. And he became a hero. Uh, he became an aspiration. Yeah. Jerry Colangelo went on to found uh, and run the Phoenix Suns. Owned the, Arizona, owned the Phoenix Suns. Arizona Diamondbacks. The, won an NBA championship and a Major League Baseball championship. And and he was the chairman of the NBA when, when I was blessed by the Ratner family with the opportunity to invest with them in the, in the New Jersey Nets. And I got to Jerry was the chairman of the of the board of the NBA, and you uh, and you went up I, to him as well. And I got to meet him. Yeah, and he's and he's he has recounted that story to me because I got to work under him at the National Italian American Foundation for a couple of years at the end of his term. And he always says that uh, he was so overjoyed when you approached him because you said to him that you know as an Italian American kid. His success had meant a lot to you. And Jerry is, if, if anybody out there knows Mr. Colangelo, he is totally dedicated to his heritage and yes. still in touch with his friends in his old neighborhood and yes. goes to Italy. And he's just a fantastic guy. He's, he's, he's a generationally impactful leader. And he's taught me so much about leadership and conduct and, and just, I mean, he's larger than life, right? He's Jerry Colangelo, right? Yes, where, do you, yeah. where do you start? Literally and figuratively. Yeah. So you've gotten to interact with some incredible people, these mentors and friends that we list. Before we close up, because um, I could sit here and talk to you forever because I think my dad's the most interesting guy in the world, but I'm going to ask you a few questions. Uh, this is like a lightning round or something? Uh, yeah, lightning round, yeah, kind of. Uh Let's keep them <laughs> lightning-esque. Okay. Uh, tell me, if you could have a meal with one Italian-American non-relative, as obviously I think you'd pick our family, uh, but non-relative, dead or alive, who would it be? Italian or Italian-American? That that I never met. You might have met them. You you might not have met them. Oh, wow. That's a great question. Uh, well, I mean, I can't pick one because they're out of the live guys – it's like the guys I try to gather at Bamonte's, and I and I and the list gets cut at 160. So that's I can't pick one. That's one of my proudest things about you as an Italian American. You celebrate every year 
a different Italian American at a small event. Well, not every year, but not when, every year. when, when but I can muster when you can muster the energy. The energy, yeah. It's an Italian American guys' night out, and right. they bring out some very interesting characters. Right. And so, guy Italian Americans that I didn't meet that I would love to share dinner with. Uh, Joe DiMaggio. I met I met him briefly. No, I never met him. I apologize. I wasn't there when you met him. That's right. Uh, Joe DiMaggio. It's one of my favorite stories, and I may never get another point to tell it on the show, but I'm going to brag about my dad. When my dad was the vice chairman of the Mercantile Exchange, they sponsored the Yankees-Mets first interleague series. And uh, the Yankees won, and I was a Yankee fan. And my dad came home. Like you described Grandpa doing, you said, basically, come with me. Put on a dress shirt and a tie. We're going to the city. And we went to the Windows on the World and the World Trade Center. It's 1997, so I'm like 14. So as the vice chairman of the Merck, you guys were going to present the trophy. championship trophy to the Yankee side. And the special guest of the night was Joe DiMaggio, who was only, he was probably two, three years away from his passing. And uh, so he took me with you up to Windows on the World, and nobody could find Joe DiMaggio. Steinbrenner was there, a lot of the players. and So you you had to go work. Right, and so I was uh, in true Viola family fashion with your cousin, who was also uh, worked with you and traded with you and lived in town with us. And uh, he's a big sports collector, so he said, "Come with me. We're going to find Joe DiMaggio." And I was a pretty timid wow. kid, right? So wow. I'm like, right away, I was a rule follower, especially around those kind of things. I said to myself, uh, "This is not going to go well." <laughs> and uh, we went through curtain, I guess, through like part of a kitchen. I don't know how we ended up in another corner of windows in the world, which was on the top of the World Trade Center. And I remember walking into this amazing view of, you know, Manhattan out these big windows. And there's this little table in the corner. It felt like a giant room. And it's just two figures. It's two, one sort of hunched over figure silhouetted in the Manhattan view. And then uh, that's Joe DiMaggio and his lawyer, Morris, uh, was with them. And he was sort of keeping away from the crowd. And, you know, he was famously, didn't, didn't like to be bothered, famously private. So I approached him and I said, uh, Mr. DiMaggio, my name is John Viola. I'm Italian-American. My grandfather came to this country, and even though he lived in Brooklyn, he became a Yankee fan because of you. Uh, would you mind if I took a picture f- with you from my grandfather? And he looked up at me. He sort of, you know, turned his head towards me without really saying anything, just sort of nodded, and just turned enough that we could use a little disposable camera and take a picture with me and him. And I said, thank you, Mr. DiMaggio. And he actually smiled. He did. He smiled, so he really whether on purpose he, or by accident. But he smiled. No, he, 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 looking at the picture, he he definitely let you in. Yeah, he gave me a moment. Yes, he gave you a moment. And that was a lot for Joe DiMaggio because 10 seconds later, as I returned to Uncle DJ, he, he approached him and he said, Mr. DiMaggio, would you mind if I took a picture with you? This is great. And DiMaggio looked up and without batting an eye, he said, took our picture with the boy. We had our fun. Let's just leave it at that. And I think that's fair to say that's become a buzz line in our family. Whenever anything just yeah. goes a little too far f- towards the yeah. t- outside of uh, what it should be, we say, let's just leave it at that. So Let's leave it at that. Another hero. That's a glorious statement. All right. Uh, favorite restaurant, Italian-American restaurant? Uh, of course, you know, most of my life could be chronicled by events at Bamonte's restaurant in the, in the neighborhood. I, I maintain it's the oldest continuously owned uh, by the same family restaurant. Uh, you're going to teach me something different. No, no, no. I, from 1900. Nobody can decide, really. Yeah. There's a lot of yeah. contenders for it. But, yeah, it's yeah, amazing. So, I mean, the Bamonte, the, 
you know, fourth, third, fourth generation, Anita and Anthony were the operators of it. When I was a child, I remember their uncle Irish. I don't know what his real name was. They called him Irish, his name, nickname. And we celebrated everything that ever happened at Bamonte's. Anthony got to know Joe DiMaggio quite well. He'd be another fascinating guy to interview. Oh, he sure would. All right, next question. Who's your favorite Italian-American entertainer? Oh, gosh. Like, if you've got one record left to play, who's it going to be? And that's a hard one. I couldn't even answer it. But. Dean Martin. Dean Martin. You think that's a... That's a Jerry, Jerry Vale or Dean Martin? Jerry Vale. Jerry Vale. Jerry Vale. Jerry Vale. I got I to gotta default to Jerry. Another Jerry. incredible I got to default to Jerry. Uh, uh, Dean Martin would probably... Well, who did I say I'd like to have dinner with? Joe DiMaggio? I would strike that. I'd like. I would like to have dinner with Dean Martin. Something tells me that'd be a lot more fun than a dinner with Joe DiMaggio. Yeah. As much as Dean I love Martin. Joe, I'd DiMaggio. like to have dinner with Dean Martin. But Jerry was my best favorite singer. All right. If you could give a recommendation for any destination in Italy, the place you would spend one week, couldn't can't leave, got to spend it in one place. What's the one spot in Italy you would recommend to our audience to go, and why? Wow. Hmm. Okay. Can I say two? Yeah, why not? You're my dad. Casa Morgana, Capri. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Villa Sant'Andrea in Terramina. You took both beautiful places. Yeah. You saying that for your Sicilian wife or you giving mom some No, no, no. It's 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 uh it, <laughs> uh I probably am. <laughs> no, no, I, I No, it's a beautiful place. Uh, just yeah, it's special places. All right, last question. If you could participate in any historical event. Are you making this question up right now? I am, yeah. I know, I know my son. Yeah. Uh, you could participate in any historical event having to do with Italian or Italian-American life. You get one day to travel back in time. What would it be? Wow. I wish I could stop the lynchings of the... 11 Sicilians in New Orleans. Wow. Turn of the century. Wow. I've done a lot of thinking about that in the past couple of weeks as we've seen all this violence erupt around the country. And uh, you talk about sadness. The, the sadness, sadness of the it. The sadness that comes with sadness that. Sadness yeah. of it's, it. It's sad and in many ways. Uh, sadness. Pathetic in the real sense of the word, evoking pathos. It's, that, it's that just. Um, what we can do to one another, you know. Yeah, what, how 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 a human being could discount the value of another human being's life. Yeah, it's the devil manifest on earth. You're not kidding. Well, not that that's the happiest note to leave on. Um, let me ask you one last question. You know, you talk about the values and people that have influenced you. Obviously, it's Father's Day, and your influence on me is. Incredible, you and mom. I've spent the last 10 years of my life, basically, as a professional Italian-American, thanks to your encouragement and support. It really helped me in so many ways to build this career of mine and to be able to eventually end up doing this show. My last question for you is, why, in a world where we had really basically approached assimilation, did you do so much to maintain our culture as a family? What did you see as important in who we were as an ethnic identity? And why might others value our culture so much? I, I think ritual, to me, ritual begets 
habits defined or informed by discipline. And ritual that is informed by tradition is extremely important. And if it's driven by something larger than yourself, the importance of tradition, ritual, habit, discipline, respect, and I, I always hesitate to use the word respect anymore because it's, it's become colloquial to the popular, mm-hmm. surrendered to the popular culture. But I mean, a real idea that, let me listen to this person because he or she knows more than me. Yeah. Let me, let me see things from their perspective because they have a different perspective. Empathetic respect. Empath- empathetic respect. But you know you're going to be okay because on Wednesday you're eating Basta Vazul. <laughs> yeah. Does that make sense? Yes, very much, yeah. Right? And on Thursday you're probably going to have leftover macaroni. I may switch the day. Right. I mean, I could tell you by the day what we were going to eat for dinner. It was like a routine. Sure. You know, Friday was going to be whatever my mom could afford. If she could afford a couple of pounds of of fried shrimp, we were going to eat fried shrimp. If not, it was going to be scungies. Yeah. You know, that was Friday. Or if she couldn't afford either, it was going to be a pizza, Mm. which was a dollar. Wow. A dollar. And I'm convinced the pies were bigger and the slices were bigger (laughs) than they are today. So uh, I think that the safety and comfort, this is all about stability and order, right? Society has been able to thrive because we have all subjected ourselves to a collected order, Yeah, right? And for me... That was sort of the flavor and the color of it, these yeah. things that happen to be Italian. Well, these things that happen to be Italian have meant a lot to you and meant a lot to me. And it's still Father's Day, and now we've been talking about uh, Basta Vazul and Scungi, so I think we've recorded a lot of stuff. Well, I love you very much, son. Thank wait, 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 you. The show's not over yet, Pop. Now you got me hungry, and I think maybe we got to go downstairs and get some of the leftover macaroni from this afternoon. All right, it's great. Can I can I say it now? <laughs> yes, yes, you can say it now. I love you very much, son. <laughs> I love you too. Thank Bob. you for a great Father's Day. Thank you for doing and this. And thank you for being who you are. Oh man, I'm, I'm everything because of you, Pop. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to go have a bowl of macaroni with my dad. I hope you've enjoyed an intimate look into my life because there's nothing more Italian than family, and I have a great one that I'm really proud to share. So, from all of the Italian American podcast, happy, happy Father's Day. We'll see you next week. Born in Italy, oh no.